This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to new books in science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Rob Wolf. Today, a few days before Thanksgiving 2014, I'm in a coffee shop in Brooklyn, New York, speaking with Alex London, author of Proxy, a young adult dystopic novel about a world in which rich kids can get away with their transgressions by their parents paying a proxy to receive the punishment. Uh, Proxy came out in 2013, and we're also going to talk about its sequel, Guardian, which deals with the aftermath of the Proxy Revolution, which came out in May this year. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to uh, to share coffee with me on this unseasonably warm November morning. It is my pleasure. I'm trying to give you the whole dystopian climate change experience. Yeah. Well, it <laughs> seems to be working as I as I sweat into the microphone. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about you as a writer. Uh, you've worked as a journalist traveling the world. You've written two nonfiction books for adults, one about war and one about Judaism. And you've written a bunch of books for children, including several under the series titles An Accidental Adventure and Dog Tags. So I wanted to ask you, how did it come about that you decided to start writing young adult science fiction? Mm-hmm. I, I was kind of in a... Uh odd journey in that direction but I'd always that was what I read as a teenager I mean I loved the uh, I loved sci-fi I loved cyberpunk you know like William Gibson and the, all that stuff and uh, the speculative stuff the really imaginative big stories that's what I was into um, and so I knew always knew I wanted to write something like that but it wasn't the first thing I started writing like as you said I was writing for adults and I was I was spending a lot of time with uh, youth around the world my kind of beat as a journalist was war affected children and for a lot of children all over the world caught up in wars and, and poverty and natural disaster and all these things dystopia is not some kind of fantasy it's the day to day reality of how they're living um, and when I started to realize that, I, I saw these connections between what I was researching as a journalist and what I read as a teen and the kinds of books I liked. And that kind of just, it all clicked into place that I could write about the issues of injustice that I was seeing and, and conflict and all uh, by writing the kinds of stories I, I read as a kid. Uh, so that, that kind of drew me there. It, it, I always knew I was going to write sci-fi at some point in my career um, because I, I tend to write books for an imagined version of my past self. I sort of write for my teenage self, and when I'm writing a book for a 10-year-old, I'm writing for my 10-year-old self. Uh, so for me, Proxy was really the book that 15-year-old me really would have wanted to read, hopefully. Um, and that was kind of why I wrote it. Well, let's explore that a little more. You you used your experience as a, as a journalist seeing, you know, 
this incredibly, uh, you know, scary, sad uh, circumstances. And I wonder, you know, are there specific things that inform some of the storylines? Absolutely. Um, completely. The, the, the whole germ of, of the book itself and who the characters are came from uh, when I was in the eastern Congo um, covering the recruitment and rehabilitation of child soldiers there. And I was at a um, center, sort of an orphanage school compound where former child soldiers were living, kids who'd fought in different armies, kids who had done countless terrible things in their lives. And some of these kids, you know, 13, 14 years old, had massacred entire villages. Um, not on their own, you know, with help from adults uh, who are always happy to help with the massacring of villages, but um, all of these kids who had done terrible things in their lives uh, were living in this place and trying to rebuild and be normal kids and do drawings and play soccer and tell dirty jokes and all that sort of normal teenager stuff. And a, um, while I was there, a volcano erupted, Mount Niragongo. This was in uh, January of 2002. Um, and the lava was heading straight for this center where these kids live. And RCD Goma, who was the rebel army in control of this area at the time, basically ordered an evacuation. Everybody, everybody had to flee. And uh, so we all left and went on the, you know, got, got out of the way of this lava flow. And I called back to the priest who ran this, this center for the demobilization of child soldiers. And we were like, hey, did you guys get out? Did you find a safe place to go? And the priest told us that he hadn't, that he had stayed, that the boys had all decided that they'd lost enough in their young lives and they were building a community and they did not want to lose any more. And this place was their home. And so in the time they had, the few hours before the lava hit, they dug a trench and they built up the dirt berms around their school. And when the lava came, it flowed into the dirt berms and into the trench and around the school. And they saved this place that they lived. They saved their community. These kids who the world had written off as lost causes, as hopeless thugs, as killers, these kids who were certainly no angels and who had done terrible things in their lives were capable of coming together and doing this amazing, impossible thing of basically battling a volcano and winning. And I was so moved by that capacity that young people had to, to affect the world for good or ill uh, that I wanted to write characters that didn't usually get to be the heroes of stories. Um, but to explore that, and that's kind of where some of the like the slum kids and all that in proxy came from. Really, these kids, um, the neighborhood, the Valve, where one of our two heroes, Sid, the, the the proxy in in proxy, where he lives, is really just the Kibera slum of Kenya, uh, outside of Nairobi. It's a giant slum. I mean, home to millions of people. It's really just my memories of that place with some high tech stuff added in. It's a futuristic reimagining of. The world where a lot of these kids end up when they leave refugee camps and they leave war zones, they end up in these slums all over the world, in Bangkok and in Nairobi and in Lagos. Um, I just threw in some high-tech stuff and described what I remembered. So in Proxy, you've chosen to name um, most of the proxies or the kids who live in the Valve uh, using classic names from classic literature. Yeah, all the all the orphans get their names uh, assigned from a, uh, a database of literary names ripped out of context. The reason for that, the reason I, I took all their 
all these literary names. Uh, when I started writing, that wasn't the case. All the Orvins had these different names, and I realized in creating a world and doing world building, there needed to be some kind of consistency with the naming conventions. Uh, just like in our world, in different cultures, have different naming conventions, and I didn't have one. I hadn't created that in the first draft, and I thought, this is just not working. This world is not holding together. I need to think of something. Were you making up sort yeah, of futuristic names? Futuristic or... names, and it was just it was silly and pointless, and they didn't sound consistent with each other. And then this was right around the time of the shooting of Trayvon Martin, and I was watching on this news as this teenager. Depending on which news outlet you were watching, he was he was being depicted as either you know an unredeemable thug or this angelic child sainted who we have lost and I knowing the reality of teenagers lives neither of those was probably the case like all of us his life was somewhere in the mess between but the media was very quickly turning this very inconvenient person into a fiction taking him completely out of the context of his life so I thought oh I will take in my story all of these inconvenient people and actually just make their names fictions ripped out of context and that's why like Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird gets named his name is applied to like the biggest jerk in the story because it's just it has no relation to the character of Atticus Finch um, and I wanted to explore how these kids don't even get their own names they don't even own their own names their own context um, that's how little value they had to the society well it's true because the Atticus Finch name seemed particularly uh Misapplied. Yeah, that was me sense. having a little fun. <laughs> but uh, but then the, Sid, the the main character, Sidney Carton, is is a bit more apropos. I yeah, think, I mean from, it's a from a tale of two cities. It's a direct reference, obviously, to a tale of two cities, which is really a theme throughout the book. I mean, I'm essentially writing a riff on a tale of two cities, um, which has a you know there is a twist on what happens to Sidney Carton in a tale of two cities and what happens to Sidney Carton in the book, uh, and it was a way of playing with that. And very few people get that. Uh, very few teenagers. I think uh, most of my readers haven't read A Tale of Two Cities yet, but the ones who have, when they realize it, I'm like, wait, I see what you did there! Um, and it's a way of messing with them, because then they think they know the ending, but they don't. <laughs> it, it, and maybe it'll get them to read more classic literature if they, if they get wind yeah, of it. Uh, yeah, if, they, if, they, if, they're, if they're interested. You know. And if it's not required, because I, I, I had to read it in high school. Yeah, I did too. Cities. I yeah. did too. Um, and I really enjoyed it, but I think that's not the case for most people. Um, I don't believe that YA books need to be gateway drugs to classics or to quote-unquote better books you know I believe they are in themselves perfectly valid reading they don't need they to stand on their own else. yeah yeah so I like A Tale of Two Cities I think it would be cool if my book inspired people to read it but I don't necessarily care if they do or not and I suppose the beauty of the internet today is that you don't I remember feeling kind of in the dark when I was reading literature and the teacher would say oh there's all these allusions to great literature but you had to you felt ignorant if you didn't read all those other books. You could just Google at anything now. Right. And, can, and I think of those illusions, for me, the ones I put in, are more just inside jokes for myself. I don't, and, you know, the intellectual underpinnings of the book and the explorations of debt, it's all there. Um, but I don't think you need it to, uh, to enjoy the story or to get a lot out of the ideas and the emotional resonance of the story. I think the way English teachers teach books can often be the death of reading, you know, <laughs> sucking all the life out of it by looking for every reference and every clever thing the author did. I think school can often uh, <laughs> lead us astray in, in how we read. In describing your desire to 
write characters um, uh, and represent people whose voices maybe hadn't been heard, you know, mm-hmm. and referring to the kids in Africa and sort of that, them inspiring you. Mm-hmm. I, I assume also the fact that uh, Sid, the protagonist, is gay is another kind of unheard or less heard voice in in young adult literature, yeah. especially science um, fiction. Certainly in, in sci-fi, and certainly at the time I was writing it. Um, I hadn't exactly planned on him being gay. He, uh, early in the writing process, kind of came out of the closet to me, and I was like, oh, well, of course. Um, and being gay myself and a sci-fi fan, when I was a teenager, I had never seen a character like that. You know, I was always reading for the gay subtext in everything. Weirdly... I thought the actual first queer novel I ever read was in seventh grade when we, we read Ender's Game. And I actually thought it was a queer novel, because uh, there was there's a lot of homoeroticism in there. And I loved it for that. And then, you know, years later I learned that the author is such a rampant homophobe. That shocked me, because I actually thought it was gay. Because oh, I was hungry for those characters. I desperately wanted to see someone like myself in that kind of story. I was, I think, sort of a typical teen boy in that I didn't, I didn't want to read a lot of romance in my books. I wanted explosions and cool stuff and action and then more action on top of that. And you never got to see gay, gay characters in those kinds of books. Um, you could see them in kissy books or in problem books about the where coming out was the big story and it didn't usually go well. But you never got to just see them be the hero of a kick-ass story. Um, and so once I re- realized that, oh, Sid was going to be gay, I also realized I could let go of that and just tell a story about an action hero and hope that readers would judge him and judge the book on whether or not it was cool and exciting and interesting and the details were neat and the sci-fi world was sort of completely built and not on, you know, who he wanted to kiss. Um, and I've been very lucky, I think, to be writing it now where people have, other writers have come before me have kind of made that possible and carved out that space and pop culture has become more accepting of gay characters so that when I turned this into my publisher, they didn't bat an eye. They were like, all right, yeah, we could publish a commercial thriller with a gay main character. Let's do it. Let's see what happened. Um, and it has been, people have really embraced that. Um, straight, gay, guys, girls, they're, they're judging the book on all those other things, not on this character. And I've been thrilled to see that. Um, it's been really exciting. I just found out that last week, I think it was last week, that uh, Proxy was chosen to be on a statewide reading list for middle schools in Texas and high schools in Texas. It's the only YA book on both their middle and high school in Texas? lists in Texas. So now every middle and high school will have this poster in their library, and Proxy will be one of the, you know, not the only book on it, but will be on that in just about every middle and high school Texas, in Texas. which is famous for rewriting history books yeah, to, you yeah, know... Um, I have not been banned anywhere yet, as far as I know. We were, we were, there was a little coffee grinding going yeah, on here. Yeah. We're getting, this is the sounds of Brooklyn, folks. Uh, um, there was a juvenile detention center where I was, I, a book club in the juvenile detention center had decided to read Proxy, and we ended up getting banned there, but not because of any content of the book. The book never got to the kids because it was the hardcover and it could be used as a weapon, and so that was the only time I've been there. But so now I'm wondering, now that this book is being, you know, is out there in, in some more conservative places, once people start diving in, if there will be any pushback, I'm very curious. But luckily, I've got great supporters um, in the library and the, the, the educator community um, who, who I trust to, to defend this book. And so we're ready if it happens. Hopefully it won't. And I saw that you have a library science degree, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's the only, only job I could have ever imagined doing other than being a writer. 
So had you worked as a librarian? Is yeah, that- I spent. I got my, my master's, and while I was getting it, I spent about ten months as a young adult librarian in Harlem for New York Public Library, which was really my first exposure to young adult literature. Um, I had not read a ton of it as a kid, just because it didn't really exist the way it does now. Um, and that was when I really started being a young adult librarian. Obviously, I had to read everything was out there that was out there, and I fell in love with the genre. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be able to make a living as a writer, so I quit my job and you know, worked full-time as a writer. But it took a few more years before I wrote my first YA book. But again, I, I fell in love with those books when I was working as a librarian, so I knew I'm going to write YA one day. Um, so I noticed on your Tumblr page, actually, that a lot of kids, uh, or at least some kids, were, were kind of coming out to you or asking for advice. And yeah. I wonder, I mean, I just got a little glimpse of that on the Tumblr page. I wonder if that's been uh, a theme of the responses you're getting yeah, from fans. Yeah, um, a lot. And it's, it's been very touching and uh, to see kids who might otherwise, they would not be drawn, drawn to explicitly queer books, but they find their way to proxy because it's not sort of built that way and it gives them exposure to that as, as, a, as a possibility and um, you know it, it, the internet's amazing because I can feel I can connect directly with my fans at the same time you know they're teenagers and they don't have the same and I'm an adult and so they're, they're, one has to be careful with the lines you know between you know public persona and, and letting not letting them think they you know I, can't, I have to keep things very clear uh, with them and it can be complicated when they are telling me very personal things and sort of unloading uh that and it, it's it's uncharted territory for a lot of authors now, um, and I try and be as supportive, you know, as I can. And it's I wish I, when I was a teenager, had had you know had been able to reach out to some of the the authors I admired. Um, I think the first time I ever read about a gay character was in Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. So I don't I don't think I could have he wasn't alive then. So I don't think I would have written him. It wouldn't wouldn't have gotten a response anyway without a Ouija board. Um, but I've really been enjoying getting those letters, and I've been getting letters from uh, a lot of actually straight boys writing about their friends and wondering how they can be better allies. Which is, and those are my favorite emails wow. to get, honestly. Wow, um, I, I really enjoy getting those. That's so sweet. Um, you just reminded me that when I was in high school, my English teacher was gay, and everyone knew he was gay, and he was the theater sponsor of the theater, whatever. Which I guess was sort of. <laughs> Yep. An acceptable place for him to be, in a way, but he was also my English teacher, and I wanted to write a paper uh, that looked at, uh, you know, it was like had characters who were minorities. But anyway, he said I should read Giovanni's Room, and I should use that as the, uh, and I should just write, do it, just focus on gay characters. I mean, he knew <laughs> I was gay, I guess, and he was just saying, just do this and do um, Corel too. Mm. So, and I was embarrassed to right. carry those books around. Oh, yeah, I never actually. would have been cut dead with a gay book in, yeah. you know, in high yeah, school. Yeah, Carell had an uh, uh, image of a torso on the cover, <laughs> and I just sort of kept it, you know, in my bag. Yeah. But I did the paper. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I guess now it's, it's easier for kids to find role models everywhere. Yeah. yeah, but I still do get a lot. One of the big things with that and proxy has been kids in more conservative communities can, can read it openly because it doesn't look like a gay book in a way that they have to be more secretive when they're reading something like David Levithan's like Boy Meets Boy or Two Boys Kissing you know like they can't a lot of them can't read that so openly although e-readers have changed that a bit now no one can know what you're reading so that that helps a little um, but I do I do I have heard from several covert readers who are like oh it's, this is great I love reading this because I can read it right in front of my parents and they'll never know 
um, not to you know uh, belabor the subject too long, but I did want to ask uh, your choice. And there's a bit of a maybe a spoiler alert here. So if anyone want, doesn't want to know about uh, Sid's the course of Sid's love life, you should stop <laughs> listening listening for the next few minutes. But um, you kind of chose to have him. He doesn't really have a chance to have an ongoing relationship. Yeah. And I just wonder was that. Um, just a constraint of the way you constructed the well, plot. Yeah, well, I was writing a, I'm writing a thriller, uh, and I, I never thought it made much sense in, in a lot of these books, uh, several of which I really enjoy. That as these kids are running for their lives and everyone's trying to actually murder them, they're like stopping to be like, "Does he like me? Does he not like me? I'm so in love." I just that didn't make any sense to me. So like, Sid's got bigger concerns. Uh, just as the as the female character, uh, Marie, she's not interested in romance. She's interested in changing the world and injustice. She's not going to be defined by her crushes. So I just there was no room in the plot for it. It just didn't make sense for any of the characters. I mean, you've got Knox, who is like a lot of teenage boys, just horny all the time. Uh, so they certainly are, are sexual beings. They talk about sex. They make jokes about sex. Right. Um, you know, a lot of the experience of being a 16-year-old boy is just inappropriate boners all the time. And so, like, Knox kind of is my way of do- exploring that and making fun of it. And, you know, some of the most lighthearted moments of the books are related to that kind of silliness. But there was really no room for romance in, in Proxy. And in the sequel, I obviously, I give, there, there, there is much more. Um, in a way, I think of Proxy as, it's a bromance, you know, it's a story of friendship at its heart between these two boys. Um, I do think of Guardian much more as a romance um, of learning. They're both kind of love stories in a way, um, but while where Proxy explores the, the complexities of the love that, that friendship is, um, Guardian is much more you know, romantic love and trust and finding that in an all-too-cruel-and-murderous world. Right, right. Um, it's sort of the beginning. I mean, it's definitely moving in that direction. There's romance, romantic flavors and a drawing together. Yeah. And, of Sid and someone, although you still kind of stop short of, again, spoiler alert, you know... Uh, the actual just, like, day-to-day of the romance? And yeah, like, and, like, the, the the kind of overt... I mean, I mean, it is a, it becomes overt by the end, I suppose, but I, it felt a somewhat constrained, and I just didn't know if that was purely about the plot or maybe a concern that you also have uh, a much younger audience. I mean, you write for so many different of, audiences, right. and maybe you... Some, I never thought about the, the younger audience. I mean, I think if there was anything, the violence, especially in Guardian, is much more disturbing to me than any, you know, boy-on-boy action that would occur. Um, right. It's the, uh, the, I think, part of it again in Guardian even was they just, there wasn't time for them. They're not going to date. Also, just they have a relationship. Uh, who they are, who Sid and, and this other character, Liam, are to each other. They couldn't exactly date through the course of this story. Right. Um, so there really wasn't wasn't room for it, and part of it was a writerly choice of enjoying that tension, that will they or won't they? Is it possible? Is it going to happen? You know, you're reading, especially with some of my younger readers who are into that romance stuff. They're reading it and they're like breathlessly, like, "Is it going to happen? Is it going to?" And so it's a way of building the tension. Um, it's cruel of me, <laughs> um, but uh, who wants to read about an easy relationship? You know, right? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I keep turning the pages, and you don't want to make dystopias look, you know, like something we all want to aspire to. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I wonder if you had any observations about writing for so many different audiences. I mean, you've written for adults and for young adults and for children and I wonder if you have to be like how you switch mind frames when you're writing and also in terms of communicating to your fans um, 
the process is exactly the same, um, especially for adults and teens. I think about, I, I, what comes to me first is the story, whether it's the plot or the voice or something like that, and I kind of just start writing. And that gives me a sense of sort of who would be interested in reading it. A 16-year-old is not going to be interested in reading The Accidental Adventures, you know, the, the books in that series have titles like We Give a Squid a Wedgie, and they're like brightly colored and silly, you know, totally silly stories. Teenagers are just going to have no interest. Um, the same way I think a 10-year-old is not going to be all that interested in proxy and like this violent exploration of debt and friendship and all that stuff. So I kind of come in it that way. Um, I'm writing about teen characters. If I write in an authentic way, then teens are going to be going to the book. With the younger kids, I do have to be a little more aware of content. Um, once I realize I'm writing a book that will primarily have younger readers, you know, I can't have sex and I can't have too, like to explicit violence or bloody gory violence anyway. The dog tags books are realistic war books. So there is violence and it is realistic and it is hard. Um, but still handled in a way that's not going to give a 10-year-old nightmares, I hope, or at least too many nightmares. Um, I'm not that afraid of scaring children. <laughs> but but too many. Too, don't want to traumatize them. Um, but with the younger kids, I, I do have to be aware of things like sentence structure and kind of the complexity because they're just starting to read on their own uh, for fun and and so I have to make it so that it, it's readable to them on their own for someone who's just learning how. For teens, really, I just, I think, writing an authentic teen voice, dealing with authentic teen concerns, everything else, I don't dumb anything down. I don't, I don't think I'd write it any differently. Um, I'm really just trying to write books that would have interested teen me. Um, and it's been nice to see that other teenagers guess are as strange as I was because they keep reading me for some reason. <laughs> and so what about your platform for communicating to them? I know you speak in schools, you speak to younger kids that way. Yeah. And then... uh, it's weird. I do, I do far more elementary school visits than I do middle and high school just because kids get busier and there's more testing and all that crap. Um, and so they just have less time for author visits as they get older. Um, so I have a slightly different persona when I'm talking about the younger kids' books. I'm a little goofier and more like a birthday clown almost, but an educational birthday clown. Um, but I'm still me, and I'm still concerned with the things I'm concerned with and talk about those things, and I'm very open about my life. You know, there's things with the, the Child Online Privacy and Protection Act, so in terms of internet communication with kids under 13, that happens a lot less, both because they're not there on the platforms and because there's all kinds of restrictions on, on my communication with them. So I had, to, I had to kind of educate myself about that as I was starting out, um, and luckily it's well trod territory at this point so there were a lot of people I could ask at the publisher and other authors and how they deal with it um, so I do get a lot of fan mail from 8 year olds and I get a lot of fan mail from 27 year olds uh, and I, I, I can respond to this differently I can certainly with, with the young adult fans be they older teenagers or adults I can communicate differently than I would with a 10 year old and part of your persona is different names, actually. Oh, I, the different names. I, I was going to say, so is that complicated? I it mean, is you... extremely complicated, and it has been my whole life. So I had a nickname growing up that I'm not going to say, that I still go by uh, among, among certain friends. And uh, so I grew up with that, but it was not my real name. So on official documentation, I would always be, you know, either Charles London or C. Alexander London, which is what my parents just thought sounded good and wrote it on stuff sometimes. And so I had these different names already, and it was confusing growing up. When I started, you know, when I got my first byline as a journalist, I thought, okay, well, Charles is my first name. I'll write as Charles. And so I had a bunch of bylines as Charles London. So when I did my first book, I thought, okay, it'll be Charles London. 
So I did those two nonfiction books. The first one, filled with disturbing stuff that the world has done to kids and that kids have done. When I wrote my first children's book, I didn't want a 10-year-old Googling me and suddenly ending up reading about, you know, a 10-year-old murdering his own family in, in, you know, Southeast Asia. And I didn't want to traumatize kids that way. So I thought, oh, I'll use my middle name. And on my high school diploma, it says C. Alexander London. And I saw that. I was, like, at home. And I was like, wait, I can go by that. That sounds like a children's author's name. It's like J.K. Rowling, C. Alexander London. (laughs) So I just used it. I just picked it innocently, which has led to no one knows what to call me. They see the Charles and the C. I get letters, Dear C. Um, <laughs> do I call him Alex? Do I call him Alexander? So I had those two names, and that was confusing enough. Well, so when, then you decided to compound well, the I problem. I did not decide. My publisher decided, making it so much worse for me. When we did Proxy, originally they thought they were going to do it under a totally different name. They were going to invent. We were going to invent a name together, and I was going to publish Proxy as if it was a debut novel by this mysterious other author. They changed their minds and said, no, we want it to be you. I was relieved because I was proud of this book and wanted it to be me who was releasing it. But they said, we don't want to do, you know, you've built a brand in this middle grade world with C. Alexander London. We want to, like, shorten it and, and do, like, the sexy teen version of you. It'll be Alex London. And I said, okay. Um, so they, they made it out. They told me I was Alex London, which is fine. I respond to the name Alex. So I thought, okay, great. And they changed my author photo. They're like, we've got this sort of sexy, you've got stubble. And they actually found it online. It was a picture of me in a hut in Uganda. My editor was Googling around and saw this. She's like, this is you. This is the teen you. So um, when I'm talking in elementary schools, it's like the clean-shaven me in a pith helmet author photo smiling. And the, uh, the stubbly, rugged uh, version of me is Alex. So I have all these identities. It's terribly confusing. Um, I had to change my Facebook name the other day because a bunch of fans, I had like a personal Facebook page, but a bunch of fans found me and it got confusing. And so I thought, oh, I'll just make it Alex. So it became Alex. Uh, and that meant like my sister and all her friends who have known me since I was a little kid are like, who is this Alex? When did you become Alex? I thought, ah, it's still me. It's very confusing wow. to see my mother tagging me in pictures as Alex because I just don't think of myself as Alex actually. Are you, uh, are you demanding any more personality uh, who knows? changes? Who knows? Maybe a drag name? Yeah. Alexandra, <laughs> maybe? Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Very interesting. And uh, I hope everyone could hear the conversation. If not, over... we'll be doing this again. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> over the, uh, the Brooklyn background noise. Um, so I have been speaking with Alex London, sometimes known as Alex <laughs> London, author of Proxy and the sequel Guardian, um, not to mention a number of other books for adults and children. Uh, we'll put a link to your website and your Tumblr page on the podcast homepage at newbooksandsciencefiction.com. Cool. And Just me. I feel like we hardly actually talked about science fiction. It's true, <laughs> but... It's a science fiction book, so yeah. we... Rock on. Yeah, that's, that's the beauty of in- science fiction. Interesting thing occurred in the uh, marketing of this book. We were told never to use the word sci-fi, science fiction or sci-fi. They decided like that would be a turn-off to people. Also, we were told not to use dystopia. They were like, dystopia is over as a genre. So finding ways, so if you notice anything the publisher has ever written about Proxy, they call it a futuristic thriller, and it's purely to avoid the term sci-fi and... Uh, dystopia. And because sci-fi has a narrow appeal? Yeah, I think they think it's just like a bunch of, you know, people in basements with bad skin. You know, it has that that 
stigma. As a sci-fi reader, I resent that, but uh, they wanted like they were trying to go for the broadest audience possible. Um, well, you can't object I, to that. Those, that oh, yeah, yeah. strategy like that. Yeah, I guess. it's a great strategy, but I think it's. I like embracing the label um, because I think what science fiction, all science fiction to me implies is a, is an awareness of possibility and basing your story on an imagined possibility. Um, unlike fantasy that's totally just out there and like whatever magical rules you can create, I think sci-fi is sort of the art of, of making the possible, even if it's improbable, making it fact. Um, so I guess maybe we had a false ending to the interview. Yeah, me, I, I didn't realize let I me just had more ask, to say about that. Well, I mean, <laughs> so in terms of the science that's actually in the book, I mean, did you do, was there any research around? In the, yes. And it, to the point where it's, uh, my editor and I have a long email chain of things that have since, since writing it have become things in our reality. Uh, because I think science fiction is very hard to write now because things are happening so fast. Um, so for example, ever, um, there's a thing with well, Google Glass, for example. When this started, it didn't exist when I was writing this book, and that's kind of what half the characters use. Um, right, they have contact lenses yeah. that let them see, you know, um, and the whole wearable data technology and installable technology and all right. that uh, just wasn't a thing. It felt very sci-fi. I was just looking at how what we had now with, with mobile phones and with marketing companies tracking us everywhere and personalized ads, I was just taking it to an extreme of, uh, of what it could be in the not-too-distant future. Um, the stuff with the blood, the probably the most complicated science in it of how everyone transmits and the thing with the big twist in the book, the big secret about the blood and everyone has their data in the blood, that was not even, that was not the case in the first draft of the book. I don't even remember how it worked. Um, but I quickly realized that it wasn't working and that the science was very flimsy. So I, I spent a lot of time talking to my, my more scientifically inclined friends about what could work um, and how, how the tracking and how the, the uh, installable data in our bodies would work uh, in theory. And so I did a lot of like, okay, is, is this idea possible? And they helped me tweak it to a way that it, it theoretically could be, though not very realistically. Right, I see, because there is a, an, and again, this, this might border on spoiler, the idea that there is a virus that is, just like as the word in English connotes both a physical illness, but can yeah. also connote a computer, yeah. uh, you know, a malfunction, you know, something that gets into the computer and screws yeah. up the programming, you kind of bring them together in reality in, yeah. in the book, and yeah. that... I gather, I assume, it is pure, uh, pure speculation. product of your imagination. Yeah, but it is not... People are working on stuff like that. I mean, with uh, DNA overwriting for various cancer treatments and things like that, people are working on being able to actually program uh, viruses and bacteria and all that stuff. Um, but not necessarily then pump it into a computer and give them computer cancer. Right, exactly, exactly. So that was very make-believe, but... Um, who knows? Maybe who knows what's going on in government labs, you know? Right. <laughs> or actually, probably commercial labs. It's probably more uh, <laughs> trying to make us uh, taste Cheetos differently or something. That's where that's where the real sci-fi stuff happens. It's all marketing. Well, I think, although we'll only find out till it's over when it's over. But I think the podcast is over. <laughs> we'll see though if you have any more. Let's uh, see what else. Let me. See. I'll wait. I'll wait, wait till you do the final concluding remarks, and then I will right. totally throw you well, off. I'm going to try to. I'll do them really fast. <laughs> Don't give me a chance. Um, let's see. So I was just saying that uh, links to Alex London. I just thought of a really important thing. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm just messing with you. 
go go make some coffee over there. <laughs> go play with the cappuccino machine. Links to Alex London's stuff will be on our page. And uh, while you're there at newbooksandsciencefiction.com, uh, you can listen to past podcasts. Don't forget to like us on our Facebook page. And you could subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction and Fantasy on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And, uh, you know, consider leaving a review on iTunes. Uh, follow us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf. You can visit my website at robwolf.net or my blog, Rob Wolf Books on Blogger. And follow me on Twitter, Rob Wolf Books. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau. Theme music by Michael Aaron. The editor of New Books Network is Marshall Poe. Stay tuned in coming weeks for my conversation with Cameron Hurley, author of The Mirror Empire. Until then, I'll be sipping cappuccino in Brooklyn. Thanks for listening.